This is 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Colville Anderson. Welcome to my happy place. My podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm a bit late with this episode, and it might be just a little bit shorter than normal. The kids are both at home because of the lockdown, so it's a bit busier than normal. But it is so impressive to see how resilient they are during the pandemic. They miss all the things they miss, absolutely, but they suck it up and manage. It is so inspirational. Oh, and my boy went and broke his leg and wrist playing football, so I'm taking care of him these days. He's doing fine, but here we are. At least something exciting is happening to liven the days up. After I recorded the first thing I'll miss in this episode, I remembered a favorite quote of mine by the American writer William Gaddis. Trains do not depart. They set out and move at a pace to enhance the landscape and aggrandize the land they traverse. With that said, welcome to episode 8. Number 42 trains. My first memory of trains is carved in the granite foundation of my mind. It's an auditory memory. The long, low whistle of a freight train crossing the prairies. In my childhood neighborhood, we lived near a train track that led from the south into the city. It was only freight trains. There were no passenger trains on that route. The city I lived in is at an altitude of about one kilometer, and for reasons that I have never fully explored, it's as though the air during the summer months transmits sounds much more effectively. So the memory of that train whistle is permanently married to the memories of the summers of my childhood, when the other kids and I were out playing in the streets until late in the evening. When you grew up in a car-centric suburb, even though as kids we rode our bikes around everywhere, trains were cool, and trains were romantic. I guess the things that we like in our life are a combination of the things that were normal for us as children, as well as the things we never had and yet longed for. When I was in fifth grade, I told my mother that I didn't want to take the school bus anymore to the private school on the other side of the city. She let me take public transport instead. When I started this daily journey, I would have to take a bus downtown, and then another bus out in a different direction to get to school, and it was about an hour and a half each way. While my childhood fascination with trains was normally reserved for the long-distance routes, it was nonetheless incredibly cool when the city implemented a light rail transit system in the early 1980s. It reduced my travel time to school considerably, which was clearly a benefit, but it was the best damn thing in the world to be able to take a train every single day. At the time, it was a very unique North American experience that you could take a train to the city center. Unfortunately, it still is rather unique here in 2020. Among the genre of books that thrilled me the most when I was growing up was travel writing. And one writer in particular, Paul Theroux, wrote books about epic journeys that he took on trains. And I tagged along for the ride. I read about his journey taking the Trans-Siberian Railway from Asia to Europe in the early 1970s. About the many months he spent traveling on the trains of China. And I knew that we shared the same passions when I read his book about traveling from his home in Boston to, 
as far south as he could go in South America. At the beginning of that book, he was just poring over maps and noticed one thin, continuous black line, a railway, that seemed to lead all the way to the bottom of the Americas. So he decided to see if he could take trains the whole way. I remember being thrilled to ride on trains when we visited Europe in the mid-1970s in the United Kingdom and Germany. I know for a fact that I'm not alone in this childlike fascination with trains. There's just something about them. When I was on parental leave with my son and we walked around the neighborhood, I knew that if I wanted to get him to have a nap, I should avoid the rail yard at the end of our street and head in a different direction altogether. But on the days when we had some time to kill and I needed to entertain him, that's where we headed. Standing on a bridge above Denmark's main rail yard on the approach to the central station, with him leaning forward in his stroller, pointing at every one of the trains that went past and just saying, Train! Train! I'm quite convinced that we could have stood there all day long, but at some point, you have to go. And I would hear myself saying, Okay, five more trains and then we're done. We can come back tomorrow. Five more trains. I've been thinking about what my first solo train journey was, apart from the light rail transit of my youth. I think it was taking the train from Vancouver to Los Angeles, somewhere in the late 80s. I remember all the details of the journey, but I can't seem to recall exactly why I was going there at that point, although that doesn't seem to matter now. I just remember how cool it was to walk down to the dining car. I figure the next installment in this rail journey was when I lived in Melbourne in the early 1990s, where I got to use their tram network every day on my way to work. But in writing this, I already feel like I'm getting off track. I absolutely love trams and streetcars in cities, but I can feel that I need to separate that from this topic. Apart from the Amtrak to Los Angeles, I think that the next proper train experience began when I traveled for a few months in China in 1990 following the footsteps of Paul Theroux. Just writing this, I can feel it, man. The clack clacking of the rails, the rocking back and forth, the screech of wheels as the train navigates a corner, the groaning as it comes to a halt at the station, the momentum as it leaves. Now that I think about it, China was probably an excellent introduction to train travel. When I headed out into the world with a backpack, I had a rough route planned out, but I was also very flexible. One thing was for certain, though. I needed to take the Trans-Siberian Railway. It was a quest. I bought the ticket at a travel agency in Melbourne when I was living there, but when I got to Beijing many months later, all I needed to do was reserve a seat. At the backpackers' hostel I was staying at, many of the other Western travelers were buying their tickets there and I found out that they were all lumped together in the same train cars, whereas I was given a seat with, I guess you could say, the regular travelers on the route. There were two trains that operated on the route back then. One of them was a Soviet train, and the other one was Chinese. I ended up on the Chinese train, which was fine, except for the fact that it was dry. No alcohol was served, so it was important to stock up in Beijing before boarding. Six long days on a train requires at least a little bit of alcohol. I got to know the people in the compartment that I sat and slept in, but I also hung out with some of the other backpackers that I had met back in Beijing. As you might expect, all the alcohol we brought ran out on day three. The train stopped just a few times a day, at various stations, and only for 10 or 20 minutes at a time. Invariably, the locals in the town or city we stopped in would be on the platform, selling wares to the train passengers as we got out to stretch our legs. I remember being fond of warm, boiled potatoes wrapped in a cone of old newspaper with a dollop of sour cream and raw onions on top, sold to me for a pittance by wizened old women who had lived a life I could never hope to know or understand. But back to the pressing issue of alcohol. There was none for sale on the platform, so at one stop, I decided to be that guy with a plan. 
I have no idea the name of the town, but as soon as the train stopped, I dashed out onto the platform and, in broken Russian, asked people if they knew where I could buy some vodka, to no avail. So I went into the station, accosting the locals with my important question in fragmented grammar, until one man shrugged and pointed outside the main entrance of the station towards a shop. It looked like a very small town with one main street, but I was under pressure to complete this task and get back to the train because it was not going to wait for me. I ran into the shop and asked the man if he had any vodka. He did. Only then did I realize that I only had American dollars on me. He must have been rather confused at the sight of this young man speaking crappy Russian, wearing weird clothes, and trying to buy some vodka. Although I'm sure he was well aware that the train was in town, because it was a weekly event. I had no idea how much a bottle of vodka would cost, but I pulled out one dollar and asked him if that would be enough. He took it in a flash. I thanked him and ran as fast as I could back through the train station to the platform where the man who was in charge of running the train car that I was on was scouting nervously for me because the train was gearing up to leave. I leapt on board and we were away. As you might expect, I was a popular guy with that bottle. I still contemplate what would have happened if I missed that train in the Soviet Union in spring 1990. I had my passport and money on me, but my backpack was on board. I would have had to wait for the next train. I look back at that and think that that might have been one of those important crossroads, not one where I had a choice, but one that might have led me in a completely different direction in the course of my life. I secretly wish that I could have found out where that path would have ended up. The train, however, continued on to Moscow and along the path that my life has led ever since. Having lived in Europe for a very long time, trains are a normal occurrence for me in my transport life. As you might have ascertained from episode 4, I traveled extensively in the former Soviet Union on an amazing train network. But I also use trains as much as possible wherever I am on the European continent. Here in Denmark, trains feature prominently on journeys in-country. I don't know which country has trains that are a kind of favorite to me. Germany has an amazing network. France has a high-speed network that I just absolutely love. The Japanese bullet trains are spectacular. It all really makes you appreciate how intelligent a transport form it really is and makes you wish you could do it more often. Here in Denmark, it's difficult to plan a high-speed rail network like they have in other countries, simply because we don't have the population density to support it. It takes five and a half hours to get to Denmark's fourth-largest city, Aalborg, but it only takes 45 minutes to fly, and the price is about the same. So there are some frustrating transport decisions to be made. There are some snapshots that I recall. If I'm trying to make this long story short, which I absolutely can't guarantee. Fragmented recollections. They may never achieve the same status in my memory as the low, long, never-ending train whistles of my childhood, but they're still etched on my brain. Somewhere in Central Asia, and I cannot for the life of me remember where. I was late to a station and was running to catch a train. A train that I simply couldn't miss because it was the only train that week. That I remember. Some undefined authority figure didn't fancy seeing me running through the station and stopped me with his military hat all cocky and his chest all puffed out. He demanded to see my documents, and, again, if you remember from episode 4, I was not in any position to show my documents in many situations traveling in the former Soviet Union in 1992. I tried to talk my way out of it by telling him I was from the Baltics, but he was insistent. I could see the train ahead of me on the platform, and I knew that it was about to leave. I saw it lurch a little bit, meaning the engine was starting the long, slow job of getting the train moving. I had to make a drastic decision. I just started running, shouting, Sorry, the train is leaving. I have to go. Sorry. The man was not at all happy and started to chase me. But to my advantage, he was in his 40s and not very fit, so that race was decided from the outset. 
I was scared, to be completely honest, but I had to catch that train. It had started moving and the acceleration, luckily enough, was incredibly slow. So I had enough time to run alongside the train, find my car, throw my backpack through the open door, and climb on board. I looked out to see the unnamed authority far behind me and finally giving up the chase. I was simply not important enough for him to stop the train. But then suddenly, a young man appeared at the open door and started throwing his considerable baggage inside. At this point, the train is accelerating, but he leaps on board. I smile at him because I just shared the same experience, but he didn't smile back. Outside the platform, a woman appeared. She turned out to be his mother. She was also carrying bags, and her son reached out to grab them and to put them on board before grabbing her hand to get her on board. The train is now at the point where it is outrunning this older woman, who clearly was not in the prime fitness of her life. The intensity of the situation increased as she simply couldn't get on board. The train attendant was next to me, his hand on the handle that will trigger the train to stop, but he really didn't want to use it. The situation is approaching the point of no return. I ran over and hung precariously out of the train as I grabbed her other hand shouting, one, two, three, in Russian, and we simply heaved her with all of our strength onto the train and onto the floor. It was clearly the most exertion she had had in many years, but they were both grateful for the help and thanked me profusely. Some stuff only happens on trains. Then there's the simple pleasure of taking a high-speed train in, for example, France or Japan, Sitting there reading a newspaper and then looking up at the digital display that informs you that you're traveling at 300 kilometers per hour. And then you look down at the plastic glass of wine on the table and it's not even moving. That is cool. Or on a local train somewhere in the south of Denmark where we stopped at a very local station and a handful of passengers got on board. An older gentleman enters the train compartment and says in a loud voice, Good morning to no one in particular, but to everyone all at once. Nobody replied, but in a flash, I said, good morning, back to him. He looked at me, nodded, and found a seat. Old school train etiquette, and he was insisting on it. Which reminds me of one small detail about traveling on long-distance trains in Russia. You enter a compartment that you will share with four people, and that at night will be converted into beds. There is an unspoken rule that each of the passengers will change into their train clothes. The three other passengers go out into the hall while they do so, until everyone has had their turn. If you're going to sit on a train for two or three days in Russia or back in the day in the Soviet Union, you need to be comfortable. Tracksuit and slippers for men, comfortable cotton dresses for women, that was the norm. If you didn't change clothes, you were regarded as odd. Until I opened my mouth and revealed that I was from elsewhere and all was forgiven. Then there are the train stations and all the amazing things that happen there. Entire worlds unto themselves. Just last year on a visit to Paris, I was catching a train at the Gare and I found myself in a little flock of passengers, all staring up at the departure board, looking for their platform. At a busy train station like that, with all the trains that go through it, you have to wait for your train to appear, and then quite often you have to wait a little bit more until the platform is announced. That ebb and flow of train travel humanity underneath the departure board is like a ballet. I've done it before, but last year I did it again. I went up some stairs and looked down and just watched all the people gathering beneath the departure board noticing how they wandered up slowly, staring at the board, and then, when their platform was announced, they hurried away. Every single time. In train stations all over the planet, at every moment. There seem to be things that you just have to do at some point in your life. Kiss someone you love on a train platform. Doesn't matter if you're arriving or leaving. You need to run to catch a train, hopping on board at the last minute. You need to miss one and stand there, out of breath, watching it pull out of the station without you on it. 
You need to take someone to the station and wait on the platform until they leave, running a bit awkwardly alongside the train, waving until the train speeds up. You need to change trains in the middle of the night in strange cities. Ride a high-speed train, as well as a chug-chugging local one that meanders through a landscape. Ah, and yes, you have to sleep on a train, on a bed. One of the things I've noticed about traveling by train, personally, is that I sleep so incredibly well. I have, quite literally, the most splendid dreams when I lay down in a sleeping compartment on a long-distance train. We can often remember dreams that we had many, many years ago, and some of the most prominent cinematic dreams in my life were shown in my own private onboard cinema, on board a train. Through my urbanism network on social media, I was looking at a map recently about abandoned rail lines all over the world. And in the context of this segment about loving trains, it was rather depressing. There used to be an absolutely amazing rail network in, for example, the United States. But so many of those lines are no more. In Europe, the map also featured many lines in places that make you say, what? Why isn't there a train there anymore? Car-centric urban and national planning, of course, had a massive influence on this. But I'm not here to lament. I am here to celebrate and appreciate. And trains rank high on the list of things that I'll miss when I'm dead. Number 43, Hotel Rooms. When I went to film school, my screenwriting teacher was talking about how the characters we create should act natural and do the simple things that humans do. Regardless of the plot and the genre, human characters should reflect humans. One of the examples he gave us was hotel rooms. He told us there are three things people do when they enter a hotel room for the first time after they put down their bags. It is universal. Think about what they might be. I'll tell you what they are at the end. I never tire of hotel rooms. Every time I walk into a new one, I experience a little thrill. I'm entering my own secret space, an inner sanctum, a room that will serve as a home for a period of time, whether it's one night or a longer stay. Longer stays are cool because you feel more and more at home. The staff recognize you. You become familiar with the elevator and the layout of the hotel. I feel so grown up when I stay in hotels. Even though, if you think about it, a hotel is like living at home. Someone cleans your room and makes you food. I've always loved hotels, which is a good thing since a large part of my life in a normal year is lived in hotels. According to my spreadsheets, I can report that in 2019, for example, I spent 159 nights in 43 different hotels around the world. It would suck to hate hotels and have to stay in them so often. Although I do have colleagues who travel a lot and who don't have the same affection for hotels as I do. You remember the beginning of Die Hard when the guy on the plane tells McLean to take off his shoes and socks and scrunch his toes when he arrives? Well, my version of that, especially if I've traveled far, is stripping right down and unpacking my bag like that. Then maybe lounging around on the bed and trying to figure out the Wi-Fi and stuff. Like I said, it's a secret space. What happens in hotel rooms stays in hotel rooms. Even hotel bars have a similar feel, like the rules inside the hotel bubble are different than everywhere else. I like a nice view, but I'll always prefer to have a room looking down on the street. My work in urbanism never ends. I love to observe streets and the people who use them. And working in design, I like a cool room with a modern interior and funky space management solutions. One thing I don't do enough, but wish I did, is stay in a hotel in my own city. A weekend break where you get to feel like a visitor to the city you know so well. One vice I'm guilty of is taking a bath, if there's a bathtub in the room, because it's so exotic, so 19th century bourgeois, so stupid because of the amount of water needed. 
but I'll fill it up with the hottest water I can handle and soak in it, finishing off with an ice-cold shower. Without a doubt, it's a pleasure not to have to clean the room that you're paying for. Although, with that said, I can never leave a hotel room trashed. I always have to tidy up a little bit before leaving for the day or before checking out. I guess that's just the way I was raised. One of my pet peeves about hotels is this. You know how they have those little signs about how they want to be all sustainable? Where they ask you to put your towels on the floor if you want them changed and they won't replace the ones that are still hanging up? So few hotels actually follow their own advice. Easily 8 out of 10. And it irritates me. I always mention it at reception, but it seems to persist. Although I have noticed that some of the cooler hotel chains have started offering to not clean your room every day or informing you that they'll do it every two or three days. It makes total sense. Nobody needs new bed linen or towels every day. At a hotel I stayed in in New York, you could put a sign on your door handle saying that you wanted to waive your room being cleaned. And if you did, they donate to a charity. Such a cool modern development. You would think that staying in so many hotel rooms would make it difficult to make a list of favorites. But surprisingly, it's not that hard. Off the top of my head, I have seven. While there are many hotels I like, very few are places that I long to return to. But I have two in Mexico City, one each in New York, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, and Barcelona, and one in a remote location in southern Sweden. And here in 2020, I miss them more than ever. Oh yeah. The three things that everyone does when they enter a hotel room? They check out the bathroom, look out the window, and they test the bed. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. If you like what you're hearing, slap some shiny stars on the rating on iTunes. And you can buy me a coffee. Check out how over at buymeacoffee.com Michael. M-I-K-A-E-L. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Catch you next time, and thanks for listening.